SQL Down Under is a podcast for professionals working in the SQL Server community. SQL Server is a trademark of Microsoft Corporation. Opinions expressed during the podcast are individual opinions and may not reflect the opinions of SQL Down Under or of Microsoft Corporation. Introducing show number four with guest Bob Boachman. guest this evening is Bob Boachman, who's the new director of de- uh, developer skills at SQL Skills, which is the company that Kimberly Tripp has been uh, running for the last few years. And Bob has over 25 years experience as an architect, programmer and administrator with uh, data-centric distributed systems. He's the co-author of the book, A First Look at SQL Server 2005 for Developers, the author of EssentialADO.net, and has written articles on data access and databases for major technical publications and online portals. Welcome, Bob. Oh, welcome to you. That's good. Now, uh, I was going to say the first time I came across Bob was on the beta news groups or beta news groups to do with SQL Server 2005. He was a contributor there, particularly in the uh, CLR type areas is where I mostly came across him, or that certainly was the area I had of interest in there. And finally got to meet him when he came down to present the Ascend training materials uh, in Australia sometime later. So what I was going to do, first up, uh, Bob, if I could get you to just describe a little bit of how you came to be involved with SQL Server in the first place. Well, I was involved with SQL Server and databases way back when the um, SQL Server and Sybase were together and sort of became involved with SQL Server 2005 a little bit more than other releases of SQL Server, but I've been dealing with it ever since the beginning. Um, SQL Server 2005 I've been involved with since since about 2002 when I was asked to write a book on it um, and with a cohort of mine, Nils Berglund and, and um, Dan Sullivan. And so I've been more involved with that release probably than any other. Yeah. But like I've fact, been involved uh, with it since book. the beginning. Yeah, in fact, that book, the first look at SQL Server 2005 for developers, I must admit, for people that haven't seen it, it's, it's a very thick book, and it's a, it's a very detailed discussion of, of a lot of the material in there. I, I must admit, it personally, I found it uh, really both entertaining to read, and I, uh, I also thought it really quite uh, gave a really detailed coverage of the topics. Uh, how did you break up the, the writing of the book with the three people? Well, we sort of just picked the topics that we liked best and knew best, and you know, did you know, did it that way. Mm. And Indeed. I actually got to do part of the CLR stuff, and Dan did Dan did some other parts of it too. Great. I suppose one of the problems with uh, writing books at the the early stages uh, are, are things that end up changing, and I'm sort of wondering, particularly thinking about things like object spaces. Oh yeah, well the object spaces thing was funny. Object Spaces was postponed the day after we shipped the book, the final copy of the book to Addison Wesley. So it was just one of those coincidences. But it's a lot more difficult to write a book on a moving target like that. I was, you know, thinking of that as I was revising the book. We're going to have a revised copy of it out. And it's going to be easier this time because things aren't changing daily or weekly or however they used to change back then. So it was a lot of work. I believe we rewrote that book probably about three or four times in total, and some of the, you know, some of the parts of it would be rewritten quite frequently. So it was it was hard keeping up, but it was a it was a fun thing to do. Um, I must admit, one of the things I I was quite impressed with with the book was the amount of detail of how and why things worked, and so you must have had fairly close cooperation with the Microsoft teams. Yeah, that was one of the nice things, and everybody was really um, good about it, too. They had said originally that we were going to have access to the team members, and I live in Portland, Oregon, so it's pretty close to Redmond. And every time I would come up, I would go visit some folks there, and I'd say how you know sorry I was to break in on their day, and they always felt like it was an important part of the product to be able to get information out about it, so nobody ever 
you know, everybody always made me feel welcome and, you know, was happy to see me. That's so great. It was, yeah, it actually, was really I must nice admit, to work with everybody there. In general, I've, I've found Microsoft very open with this release in terms of Ooh. providing details. They, they certainly yeah. seem very prepared to provide details to, to anybody who, who really is interested. Well, if you're going to start with it that early, too, they, you know, sort of have to have to do that. And I was that's why I was happy to do it. Mm. Well, in terms of CLR integration, then, and uh, and managed code, I suppose, which is the main main topic for today, the can you first up describe why you, why you think it's uh, an important aspect for the database in the first place? Give, given the fact there are obviously a number of DBAs who are sort of concerned about the whole concept, I suppose the first important thing is the justification of why why is why do we want to do it in the first place? Well, one of the reasons, or the biggest reason, is that Transact SQL, which is the procedural language around the SQL language itself, is an interpreted language. And so it lends itself really well to data-centric things, like going and getting a row set from the database, for example, but doesn't really lend itself well for, you know, things like writing, um, you know, long involved uh, mathematical computations. And people wonder why you might want to do that in a database anyway. But you, you know, have to remember too that if you fetch that data out to a middle tier or a client to do the same thing, if you fetch a lot of data, things are going to slow down quite a bit. So, you know, one of the, the major reasons to have CLR in the database, I think, is for mathematics-centric um, programming. Uh, one of the things that's also raised this uh, then is the whole discussion about whether a SQL Server really should be an application server, um, given the fact that also uh, we can now do things like expose stored procedures as web services and so on. It, it really is raising the whole discussion about how much of the business logic really has a place in the database at all. Well, that's true. Um, and I just sort of like to think of it as giving people more options. You can do these things in the database, or you can do them outside of the database. And so based upon what I like to call locality of reference, it gives you an option to do things where they make the most sense. Now, it doesn't make sense for every case, and it doesn't make sense for every problem, but it's certainly good to have options. What, what about the uh, discussion uh, that I've also seen raised, the, the idea that at least then you can use the same programming language from the client right through the middle tier down to the database? Do you, do you think that's got any significance? Yeah, I've heard that too, and there's a couple of different ways to approach that, um, you know, that concept. One is that don't think for a second that being able to do your procedural part of your programming in um, .NET managed code means that that absolves the programmers of knowing the SQL language. The real language of a relational database is SQL, and Transact SQL is the you know parts of it that go beyond SQL with respect to things like flow of control and things like that. So there's a difference between yes, you can use it, and yes, that absolves you from using SQL. So that's that's the first thing. Um, the second thing is that, yeah, it's, it's possible now, and in fact, even more with the um, merged providers to be able to use the same, not only the same language, but the same kind of code. Originally, there was the provider that was specific for SQL Server, and it was highly optimized for SQL Server. The, the, it was called the SQL Server Provider. Yeah, this was system, system dot, this was system.data.sql server, as opposed to yeah. system.data.sql client. Yes, exactly. And because it was optimized, it had so different of a programming model that it was difficult to see what this was going to buy you except for the fact that you could use the same language. With the merged provider, that's SQL client that can be used in the server, it does have some optimizations for the server in it, but the programming model is so similar that even data access code could conceivably be similar, you know, in the client and in the server, um, as you know, with mathematical computations, of course, the code is, can be almost identical. Indeed. And I suppose one of the possibilities is it does give you a chance to potentially share some assemblies uh, between other parts of your code uh, where there may be function libraries or things like that. Well, I remember talking to members of the team about that, and I've sort of had said something to the same 
same uh, concept in one of my slides, and they said, don't tell people that they can do that because people will think that there's a switch in Visual Studio that says <laughs> deploy on client or deploy on server. And so I had to mm. promise that I would tell everybody that there is no such switch. But you could certainly, there's a, there's a well-known Microsoft example that shows a Witten Wagner algorithm. And this algorithm could be implemented on the server, could be implemented on the middle tier, could even be implemented if you have a really outrageously, you know, powerful client, could be, be implemented on the client. And it's something that most people would, you know, do with middle tier servers. But the problem with doing that is that there's so much data that has to be passed around the network to be able to do these computations that sometimes it's, you know, better to do it actually on the server itself. And that code, I believe, runs someplace between 40 and 50 times faster written in managed code than written in Transact SQL. So that's a really good example of how you could do things in different places, depending on how it makes the most sense. Indeed. I suppose the other thing it has introduced then are a couple of new objects that we really didn't have at all in T-SQL as well. You mean like SQL, thinking in SQL particular? Oh, I, no, I think also just at the uh, the level of things like the new aggregates, for example. Oh yes, the user-defined types and the user-defined mm. aggregates. Those, especially the user-defined types, are really misunderstood. When I first saw user-defined types myself, in fact, you know, in the, the back in the SQL 99 standard, I thought, ah, object-oriented database. It's meant to make SQL Server an object-oriented database. And I was told in no uncertain terms that it's not really meant for that, it's not really optimized for that, and what it's meant to do is to add new scalar types to the type system, yes. things that you might have in SQL Server, like a time-duration data type that SQL Server doesn't have natively. Um, the user-defined aggregates are really interesting because the engine is so aware of those things that they can even do the aggregation on multiple threads. There's a, a method on the aggregate called merge, where if you're doing the aggregation on multiple threads, you merge them back together. And that's how aware the engine is of the you know, user-defined aggregate. So yes, those are things that are brand new and, and haven't even been in SQL before, yeah. in SQL Server before. So maybe if we start by going through what, what are the things that we can build in uh, using managed code? Okay. Well, in managed code, you can build um, three things that you could either build in Transact SQL or in CLR, and those are stored procedures, user-defined functions, and triggers. And two things that you can only build with CLR, which are um, user-defined types and user-defined aggregates. And you put those things or you, you build those things in .NET as methods in classes and assemblies, and then you put your assemblies inside the database and you um, do, you'd run DDL, and your part of the DDL has a special part called external name. And that's a three-part name that in user-defined um, functions, for example, refers to the assembly, the class, and the method within the class you want to correspond it to. And the SQL engine, SQL Server engine, just executes that just like it was a normal user-defined function. One of the things I've found, particularly with the um, people coming from a VB side of things, the, the concept that that class is the middle part of that name uh, actually needs to include the namespace as well, if there are any namespaces involved. Oh, yes, that's true. Well, the second part of the name has to be the class name, and the class name can be a compound name that includes namespaces. You can put dots in there. And the separator for the three parts of the three-part name is also the dot. So if you include a namespace, you do have to have, you know, the the second part of the name be surrounded by um, straight brackets just so you can distinguish which part of the class it is. It has to be the entire class name, and the entire class name is in, does include the namespace. Um, Visual Studio gets around this, by the way, if you make a Visual Studio database project yes. by not having your um, method or not having your class inside of a namespace at yeah, all. Remove, remove so the you don't have namespace. to worry that. Yeah. Yes. And then there is also the, the interesting thing about case sensitivity. Everything CLR related is case sensitive, and this might throw some VB programmers yes. um, at first, but you know, that's that's just the way they decided things were because they didn't, I think, want to have to worry about whether or not the database itself was case sensitive and so on. Um, it's the same thing with service broker, by the way. Service broker objects are case sensitive, 
and that's because service brokers talk between databases or can talk between instances. And they didn't want to have to worry about, was the one I was talking to case sensitive or so forth? So they just decided on all objects being case sensitive and service broker, same way all external names are case sensitive. And not just external names, but anything to do with CLR. Okay. So maybe if we talk about the different types of objects. So starting up with functions, so what what can we do with functions? Well, user-defined functions are usually used to have some kind of complex uh, mathematics or business rule because the SQL spec states that you really can't do anything to or um, change the state of the database inside a user-defined function. So you can't update things, for example. Mm -hmm. And the user-defined functions were introduced to SQL Server in SQL Server 2000. So the folks that I've spoken to think that the user-defined function is going to be one of the best fits for CLR. In SQL Server 2005, the user-defined functions got faster in Transact SQL, but they're faster still in CLR. So that's probably the best use for it right now is in the user-defined function. Uh, I must admit, uh, in talks that Balaji and others have been doing, they they certainly seem to emphasize uh, the the fast performance of managed user-defined functions. Yes. Okay. Yeah, even as opposed to, or, or even with respect to the fact that Transact SQL user-defined functions have become faster in 2005. They're, it, you know, CLR is still faster. Okay. And then tab- we can also do table-valued functions. Oh, yes. Table-valued functions changed recently. You used to have to implement this fairly long, complex interface called iSQL Reader. Mm. And in the last couple of releases, uh, beta releases, they've changed it so that you implement two methods. Um, and it's much better for writing code, and it's much clearer what it is that you're writing. Um, we had an example in our first lookbook that Dan Sullivan wrote, and that example took 420 lines of code, I believe, to write a user-defined function that produced uh, Fibonacci sequences. And we rewrote that, or I just rewrote that, in the latest releases, and I think we're down to less than 40 lines of code. So it's a big code saver the way they chose to write them or chose to expose them. That was because you had to implement the whole of iSQL Reader and there were just so many methods and things, whether you were using them or not. So, But they all, oh, all yes. needed to yeah, be implemented. Yep. Yeah, if you looked in our, our example or Dan's example, you could see that um, half of them says, you know, here because it has to be or, you know, <laughs> code you know, return null or something like that. So this is a lot easier. Well, just if, you know, like if, if you only expose integer columns and you use a defined function, what were you going to do with a method called get string? You know, <laughs> yes. or what, you, what were you going to do with a method called get double? You know. Mm-hmm. And uh, what about uh, then we have stored procedures? Stored procedures are sort of the most interesting because stored procedures usually either wrap data access or do data access instead of a stored procedure. And Transact SQL can still beat CLR for data access. So if you're wrapping the um, stored procedure, if, if, if all a stored procedure does is wrap one access to the database, it's probably best written in Transact SQL. If, however, a stored procedure does um, not only calls to the database to get data, but also does some kind of computations or permutations of that data, um, it might be a candidate for CLR. What I tell people is not, don't go blindly and just say, oh, I'm going to rewrite everything in CLR. But what you do want to do is take your most complex stored procedure, the one that has a lot of procedural code in it, and write maybe one of those or two of those over in CLR and see if you get any performance benefit at all. Mm -hmm. I remember at the beginning of the Ascend program, there was a guy that came to me at the end of the CLR part and said, really glad we're finished with the CLR stuff. I don't see any use for it in our application. And he wrote me mail back about oh, a couple of months later, said, just on a whim, we went and rewrote one of our stored procedures that used data and computation in CLR, and we just wanted you to know it was four to five times faster. So thanks for even suggesting it. And I don't remember suggesting or plugging any specific feature, just telling people how they worked. But it was yeah. nice to hear that. So that, that's sort of the strategy I would 
you know, say that people should use with stored procedures. Okay, that's outstanding. And the other one uh, that is similar to what we can do today are triggers. And, yeah, triggers are kind of an interesting case because in most triggers you don't want to do anything specifically to, you know, return a result set or, you know, do anything with data inside of it. Maybe you just want to see if certain rules are being followed. And so the trigger doesn't really have that compelling reason all the time to be written in CLR. There have been people, though, that have written triggers for things like writing to uh, message queue, for example. And if you want to do something outrageous to access external things inside of a trigger, things external to the SQL Server instance, you might want it. But the trigger is probably the most difficult one to motivate among all the, the CLR um, functionality. Actually, my feeling on that uh, is that I, I think that uh, DML triggers, like insert, update, delete triggers, tend to be very data-centric. And I, I think they'll probably still mostly be best done in T-SQL. And uh, even if that involves calling uh, a user-defined function to, to do something more complicated. But I suspect that DDL triggers uh, are going to be much more text processing and um, may well lend themselves uh, much more to manage code. Do you think mm, that's, that's reasonable? Not, you know, that's definitely possible. Mm. Especially because in a DL trigger, you get that event data, this chunk of XML, and you might want to use the XML processing either in Transact SQL or in the CLR um, with maybe system XML um, to process that. So, yeah, that's that's probably the best case for them. I think you're right about DML triggers, though. Mm. Yeah, actually, one of the things uh, I was talking to the product group about, I, I would really like to be able to modify... Uh, the the DDL itself in the DDL trigger, uh, where today they only give you a read-only copy via the event data, and it just occurs to me that in in standard DML triggers uh, we can physically modify the data while we're in the trigger, uh, but in a DDL trigger we don't don't have the ability to do that. And um, I got the impression it would be kind of very messy to give you the ability to do that directly, but they were discussing maybe having an option to provide an, um, an instead of trigger in, uh, instead of doing that. And the sort of reason that's going through my mind is I, I think it would be nice to be able to do things like uh, if I if I just loosely type into a query tool, you know, create proc blah, 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 I, I would love it to be able to nicely format it, for example, before it puts it uh, in, into the catalogue. Uh, and, and it just, just strikes me that all that sort of thing could be done via a DDL trigger. Or uh, you could enforce naming standards, or you could, uh, w- which you could do without modifying it, You could just because you can just roll back. But, um, th- yeah, I think there's, there's a whole lot of text processing things that it might be very interesting, um, almost like code macros or snippets or something. Uh, I mean, which you could do in the client tool, but it just would be interesting to be able to do it in a trigger. Yeah, that's true. I, I remember the the DDL trigger that you wrote when you were at the class. Yeah. That when you got so tired of watching me by mistake put things in the master database to keep uh, we've all done people that. from <laughs> putting anything inside the master database. Yeah. In fact, yeah. Well, I, class is probably the only way you dared get, you know, do anything like that. Yeah. <laughs> no. That's good. Well, so we might take a break then, and then after the break, we'll come back and talk about the new types of objects and also talk about database uh, security and stability. Sounds good. As well as community resources such as this podcast, SQL Down Under offer mentoring services and both private and public training options. If you need to get your project back on track or if you need to get it off to a good start, why not give us a call? We have also recently introduced a series of online courses available in both Asia-Pacific and US-UK time zones. In particular, the first course that's offered in this series is Query Performance Tuning. You'll find details at www.sqldownunder.com. Now, another thing that we should talk about are just the new objects that we can build. So first up, I suppose maybe if we tackle aggregates, because they're they're certainly a completely brand new thing. What are your thoughts as to what we can do with user-defined aggregates and why they'd be important? So 
aggregate itself is just a function that takes a set and returns a single value. And there's a bunch of aggregates inside of SQL Server as it stands now. I think I counted there's about 13. And there's five aggregates that are, you know, required by the SQL spec itself. But a lot of people um, like to do things related to OLAP-type processing or statistical processing inside the database. And a lot of those require aggregate functions. So one of the nice things about use defined aggregates was if you wanted a special function that you wanted to put inside the database before this, you had two choices. You could write that function in transact SQL, and then the engine would have no special knowledge that it's an aggregate function. Or you could write a message to SQL wish. And this <laughs> with user defined aggregates written in .NET, you don't really have to wish. If yeah. you really want an aggregate bad enough, you can write it yourself. The engine's aware of it, and so it's a nice, nice thing. Yeah. User-defined aggregates, too, um, seem to be something, or at least user-defined aggregates in, in managed code, are something that, as far as I can see, only SQL supports. It's not part of any spec. No other database supports it. Interesting. And what uh, I've seen a few examples where the ability to write aggregates has allowed you to take code that would have been cursor-based code and kind of collapse it down to a set-based operation uh, where you have control over the aggregate yourself. Um, I, I think also what's sort of interesting, I suppose, is just the basic, if you're not happy with some min-max and so on, I mean, just the fact that you can build your own if, if, if you really need to. But, uh, for example, I've seen some people suggesting maybe they want average and they want to be able to have a different version, you know, so whether or not it deals with null values or not, you know, you, you could then have control over that sort of thing. Mm, um, yeah, I'm not sure about that one. I mean, mm. Transact SQL has ways to get around that sure. or solve that specific problem. But there are aggregates that you might want, especially with respect to the user-defined types, um, that you may not have directly supported in inside a SQL Server, and it, you know, might be a good good place to do that. Um, what when we were looking for aggregates to write for our book, one of the things that I noticed was that since the Oracle database doesn't have a specific analysis services server, they do a lot of OLAP-type processing inside the database, and so they have many more aggregates that are exposed inside the databases in, in their language than SQL Server does. Yes. If you wanted some of those aggregates, or if you were converting an Oracle application to a SQL Server application, this would be a really good use for them. Yeah, that's actually really good. So, yeah, so if you're doing Oracle migration, this is another area where this might help you do that if you're dependent upon functions that, uh, or aggregates, sorry, that are part of that product but not part yeah. of SQL Server. Yeah. That's really yeah, it good. Makes, it makes um, operations with databases that do things differently a little easier. And I suppose, as you say, uh, where we've now got user-defined data types, uh, that's right, you can now define aggregates that apply to those data types that are sort of domain-specific. Sure, so the one I always do is like a simple example that's the sort of hello world example is the point, and then you can use the aggregates to add points together. Mm -hmm. um, there is sort of a limitation to the user-defined aggregates and user-defined types, though, in that they can only save state that's up to 8,000 bytes. They can't yeah. save more than 8,000 in this release. So that limits the, or makes it trickier, at least, to write some of the aggregates that you might write by saving every value, for example. Yes. Now, that leads us into user-defined data types. And, and as you said, this is not intended to be like the complex types in the, the ANC spec. This, this is specifically, this is really intended to extend the scalar type system. Actually, it's sort of interesting that uh, all the best examples I've seen really are extending the scalar type system. Nearly every example I've seen from Microsoft has things like point and triangle and so on. Well, multi-value is different than non-scalar, too. Mm. I mean, they can be multi-value, but, for example, if a point represents exactly one point on the Earth or one point on a, on a two-dimensional plane, that really is something that represents one fact. Yes. I always start out with Dan's example of the date data type, and the date actually has three different values. When people think of dates, they think of month, day, and year. Yes. Now... It, you wouldn't ever store, or you, you know, you could, but you wouldn't likely store month, day, and year in three specific integer columns inside a database. Sure. And in fact, date is represented usually by a number of seconds since some magic date. 
So although date has multiple values, date really is a scalar data type. Now, nobody ever thinks of storing a date as three integers because the SQL people gave us, as part of the standard, a standard date data type. Um, they didn't give us, for example, a standard data type for uh, point on the globe or for you know position on the, the earth or something like that. And so if you wanted to use those or implement those domain-specific scalars in your application, um, you could do that with the user-defined type. But the thing you shouldn't think of doing with the user-defined type is taking person table and making it into person object. It yes. just wouldn't scale. It wouldn't, you know, wouldn't be what you'd want at all. Yeah. The the other reason for that, I think, is also the the lack of some of the other object-oriented uh, aspects. So a lot of people not realizing. For I was talking to people during the week, for example, and they were surprised that uh, uh, the lack of inheritance, for example, if I build a, a stored procedure that takes animal, I, I can't pass dog to it. Right. Although you could conceivably get around that, but just by implementing every method and you know delegating to the base class. Sure. But again, that's not what people think of when they think of objects and object-oriented programming, for sure. No. And uh, the the other one were uh, was overloaded methods. And uh, yes, overloaded methods aren't supported at all. You yeah. can't define either of them or any of them. Yeah. So I think so that those two do do tend to also help preclude use as a general purpose sort of object oriented database. So, but I mean, who knows? I yeah, mean, they, they may change in the future. Right? That, sure, there, there's nothing that prevents you from from using inheritance though in your own internal implementation. Yes. Or using um, you know overloads in your own internal implementation either. As long as you t- try, or as long as you don't try and define those to transact SQL you're fine. Yep. It's just that Transact SQL has nothing in its catalog to say, oh, this class you know, derives from this class, or this is really an overload of that method. It doesn't do you know, the, the resolution at runtime that an object-oriented system would do. So this allows us to build uh, variables and uh, columns in tables and so on using these user-defined types. I suppose one of the next things that comes up, you can normally do with a type, a comparison, so sort of less than, greater than, equality, things like that. So what happens there? Oh, that's a really interesting story. Originally, the, the way to implement that kind of you know, comparison in a .NET object normally is to implement iComparable. Yes. And originally, way back in the early betas, they had they would allow you to implement iComparable, and they would use your implementation of iComparable. But they were really concerned that folks might implement iComparable badly. Imagine an order by statement in which halfway through the order by something was greater than something, and then halfway, you know, further on the order by it was less than it. That could have all kinds of lovely consequences with respect to the engine. Yes. So they decided to sort of not go by your implementation of iComparable if it was in the engine. If your type is to be comparable as far as the engine's concerned, it has to be binary compatible. And either you can play some special tricks to make it binary compatible, like maybe put a key at the beginning, like Dan did in the example for our book, or you can um, have this special uh, serialization called native serialization, and the system will take care of it for you, or .NET will take care of it for you. Yeah, and where it just does a byte-by-byte comparison. Yes. Hmm. And even if you don't use iComparable, you can't use iComparable on the server, you would always want to implement iComparable if you want to use that type on the client because people might take bunches of these types out over to the client or over to the middle tier and do some computation on them. If you do that, iComparable is your friend. If you expect to use iComparable inside the server, though, you're going to be in for a surprise. It doesn't mm-hmm. use that at all. Yeah. And there's been a long discussion um, lately, I don't know if you've seen this one, about nullable and how the is null works and how it's a little different than the SQL null. Well, that's right. And one of the I things... I thought that is null was meant to... Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, one of the things is that, that we should mention is that the fact that uh, your types are required to implement iNullable. So that's right, yes, they have to they be are. null aware. Yes, and they also have to implement parse. Yes. Some of the other databases allow classes as um, user-defined types, and they don't have those requirements. So what you see is people go dump big parts of the base class libraries into 
um, a database as a user-defined type. But in SQL Server, they have to implement nullability, and they also have to implement um, the ability to parse a user-defined type from string. And this is because SQL Server did not implement a new operator. So the only way you can get a new instance of a user-defined type is to either have a static method that makes one, maybe called the creator method, yeah. or to have, um, you know, to parse it from a string. Yeah, so basically you have to have an, uh, a default public constructor that doesn't take any parameters, and effectively you've, you've also got to implement inullable. Um, and now one of the discussions that was kicking around um, in the, over the last few weeks was the whole concept of the isNull method. And, yeah, the discussion was would yeah. SQL Server ever call that anyway because it knows if the object's null. So it, it wouldn't physically well, grab an object and then, then call isNull. Yeah, and that's a big topic of discussion right now, too, because the isNull method, I'd always thought, was meant to indicate whether or not a data type was null or an instance was null of a data type. It comes from, or the big implementers of it have been types, And so in types, where they are all single-valued structures, there is also a special property called value. And is null apparently indicates that that value is null. Um, it it does come out the one to one correspondence that also indicates whether or not the instance is database null. And because of some of the optimizations inside the server, you can get if you use is null inside the server, the value null back from the if you try and invoke is null on the server. Yep. This is very strange because is null returns a boolean which has two values, true or false. It's not a SQL boolean, which returns three values, true, false, or null. Oh, null. Yeah. You can get that null on the server. Yeah. Mm. So it is kind of strange, and there's a discussion going on about it right now, and we'll see what we'll see what comes out. Maybe an educational opportunity, Greg. Right? Yes. <laughs> well, actually, <laughs> For people that, like you and me. <laughs> that, that, that does raise another one of the questions is, uh, or an issue is, the SQL types versus the native types, and uh, implicit yes. conversions and so on, and. Uh, and as to whether really you should be trying to write your code using SQL types and controlling your own type conversions and casting rather than letting SQL Server do that implicitly? Well, the other, I mean, SQL types were meant to get around the fact that the other way you determine whether or not things are null inside the client is that if they are null values inside the server, they come back as a special class called dbnull. And you look for dbnull.value to be true. And the strange part about dbnull, the class, is that it really can't be cast to any of the other classes. So you can't say, oh, yes, make this a null just in the, in the client. You have to replace the entire class, or you have to replace the entire object by a different class. Hmm. So SQL types were meant originally, I think, to get around that issue because that turns out to be a lot of different, you know, if handling type code. With the SQL types, all you have to do is look at the isNull property and, or I'm sorry, call the, yeah, it is isNull property yeah. and see if it's true or not and then you know if it's database and all. Yeah, so the SQL types look to me like uh, a SQL int, for example, just really looks like it's a structure that basically has an isNull flag and then the, the integer value. Yeah, basically that's mm. all the SQL types were different with. And now in .NET, there's also these generic nullable types. And unfortunately, people always ask about these. Transact SQL, or I'm sorry, SQL Server doesn't really have any concept of using those. So mm. although it's another thing like inheritance, although you can use it in your implementation, Transact, or Transact SQL or the engine isn't aware of that type. Yeah. You can't, for example, have a generic aggregate, which would be nice. <laughs> yes, indeed. So I suppose one of the questions is then, would you be trying to write most of your managed code using SQL types or only at the boundaries? It depends if you're writing, I think, a procedure or a function. Um, if you're writing a function, the function can have a special um, property on the SQL function attribute, which is similar to defining this in Transact SQL, which says on null call. And so it won't call if the value is database null. If you write a function and you have on null call, you have no necessity to use SQL types inside that function. 
or to have the parameters to that function be SQL types. However, stored procedures don't have any of this on null call stuff. And so if you were going to have input parameters, they certainly would have to be SQL types because, you know, somebody might pass a null in there. And if they do pass a null, you have an exception. It doesn't even, doesn't even hit the procedure. So, you know, functions, there's a way around it. And in fact, in functions, that's usually the, the semantic you want of a function, right? If somebody reach, if somebody passes in a null value, you want a null value back. Yeah. Most functions work that way. With stored procedures, they don't have any, you know, null on null input. And so, therefore, you sort of have to use SQL types, at least for your parameters, mm. to be able to get the right semantic. Yeah. And I suppose another, that leads us into another area, then, uh, is really stability and so on. So, uh, obviously, a very uh, key aim in implementing uh, managed code inside the database was the stability of the server itself. And so, what, yes. what's been done there? Oh, well, that's a really interesting story, too. I've heard it said that a couple times early in the early alphas of SQL Server, it was even suggested that, well, you know, SQL Server, by, by people who didn't know any better, right, that, ah, SQL Server could just recycle itself like the ASP.NET Worker process does. Uh-huh. And it's like, mm, I don't think so. That's not possibly <laughs> not an issue. Yeah. So what they had to do was some amazing things with the posting APIs. I'm sorry, the hosting the APIs, hosting APIs yeah. the .NET hosting APIs. And basically, these hosting APIs had been drastically um, enhanced to allow SQL Server to pretty much control everything that the .NET runtime does. Pretty much, SQL Server is almost the operating system as far as .NET is concerned. It can control the memory. It can control the I.O. completion ports. It can control the escalation of a, an unhandled exception. Anything that you would expect from an operating system is done by Transact SQL. I've just finished reading a really good book on this by a guy named Stephen Prechner, and he goes into this in intricate detail down to the last you know interface pointer and method on the interface, and it's it's quite amazing what they did, and. They also, in .NET 2.0, put in these reliability classes, classes like safe handle. And if you wrap your managed, you know, managed thing inside of a safe handle, um, that that handle is is guaranteed to get released, even if there's a app domain unload, for example. App domain unload, by the way, is always the way of last resort if SQL Server has nothing else that it can possibly do to save the integrity of the process, it is allowed to do an app domain unload. But yes, even I, an app I heard domain that unload, described it, I heard that described as if it has to choose between uh, your code and it it wins. <laughs> yes. Well that's that's because it controls everything. The yeah. horizontal, the vertical and everything else. Mm-hmm. So I think it is really important that database administrators, especially those ones that might say, oh, not in my process, it won't be. You know, the, those folks that, that didn't want extended store procedures, and for good reason, um, inside the database before, that they should read about these hosting APIs so that they feel better about exactly what's happening and exactly how much control they have over everything. It's quite amazing the amount of work that they put into this. And then also there's the, the approved list of .NET assemblies. Every .NET assembly had to go through an approval process before it was allowed to load in SQL Server as a safe assembly. And so there is only a uh, list of them. I think there's about 15 or 20 maybe. Yeah, last time um, it was 15 that, or so. Yeah. Yeah, that can load inside of SQL Server. And it's not that the other assemblies are inherently unsafe. It's that they didn't want to allow any assembly that hadn't gone through the evaluation process to be able to load in there. You can still get those in, by the way. Yes. Um, you get them in by taking them as your own, mm. and those are stored inside the database just like user assemblies. I suppose so we should mention that as well, is that the, once you do a create assembly statement, the assembly is actually placed in the database, and uh, probably also emphasizing the word database rather than server. So it's, uh, these are database-specific things. Right, assemblies are scoped to the database because app domains are scoped to the database, or mm-hmm. vice versa. And um, the, the fact that assemblies live inside the database is more like databases that would put jar files inside the database if they were running a Java runtime, mm-hmm. as opposed to databases or that leave the code outside the database, like 
DB2's implementation of .NET does this. They will load the code off the file system every time. Um, extended stored procedure works like this. Com object works like this, that they will load the code off of the um, file system rather than to put it inside the database. And I think this is a good thing for assemblies, that they should be part of the database, they should be backed up with it and subject to all the same constraints that any other database object is. So what does this mean then for extended stored procedures? Uh, probably means the um, the eventual um, death of the extended stored mm. procedure, really. Um, you can write your managed code in managed C++ if you want to, so there really isn't that much of a speed issue there at all, and extended stored procedures were fairly dangerous because although they couldn't branch to location zero, at least on the main thread, and cause an exception, um, they could write over SQL Server's memory buffers. Yes. So even uh, unsafe assembly is safer than the safest extended stored procedure. Do you think, think Microsoft so. will rewrite a lot of their own extended stored procedures as managed code? That's that's debatable because mm. some of those... I remember doing a talk on extended stored procedures once and was amazed about how much of the different things that you would think of as part of the server are actually written as extended stored procedures yes. rather than integrated into the SQL server.exe. So those, I don't think they'll write over. They've, they've already taken responsibility for those. Those are part of the server as far as everybody's concerned. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's just the same. That, that's like saying would they rewrite the internals of the server in CLR. It's, yeah. you know, doubtful that they would mm -hmm. do that. Yeah, I must admit, if you look at, uh, I think the naming conventions are a giveaway, where originally they were all XP underscore and uh, the the non uh, the standard system stored procedures were all SP, but now if you look at the the folder containing an Enterprise Manager, you look at, oh, sorry, uh, now Management Studio, but if you look at the um, extended stored procs, I mean, there's uh, quite a lot with uh, uh, SP underscore something <laughs> now that are extended stored procs, so... I, I think there must have been quite a migration of code into extended stored procs, actually. Yeah, it, it seemed so. like a lot of the, the, the new, you know, some of the new features were implemented as extended stored procs rather than putting them right into the engine. Mm. Um, another the interesting thing about extended stored procs is if you go to the books online now and go to the programmer's reference section of the books online, and go to the extended stored proc section of that, first thing it says in the extended stored proc section is um, extended stored procs will be deprecated in future versions. Um, you should use CLR. Yeah. So that's a pretty straightforward uh, you know, statement of intent. Mm. Now, another uh, aspect of that, I suppose, we should also mention that when the assemblies get loaded up and placed in the database, uh, it can also place additional files in there as well as the assembly. Yeah. Yeah, it can put any file you want. <laughs> you can put, you can associate a text file that's called notes to self with an assembly if you want. Mm. Um, the usual reason that it's done, though, is that if you're in development, of course, you would do this in production, you could debug a CLR stored procedure. And one of the things that you want to, or that you must have to debug a stored procedure is you must have a PDB file, must have a symbols file. Mm. And so the thing that this is mostly used for is to get the symbol file into the database as well. Earlier versions of, of the betas would actually go out to the file system and try and find the symbols file out there. Um, this version does not. So yeah. won't you know won't in the RTM version, and therefore you sort of do have to have the PDB file in there. Visual Studio goes one step further than that, and they will go put the source code, and they used to put, I believe, even the project file inside the database. And I remember you had an idea where you were working on something to have that source code compiled inside the database. How did that ever go? Well, what I've actually done with that is uh, I was a bit keen to try and build um, probably a, a user-defined uh, function that effectively took a string that, that said which language you wanted to build the code in and then maybe another string that actually contained the code and returned back a, uh, a sequence of sort of hexadecimal as ASCII so that that could actually be used um, in a create assembly statement to, to generate the code directly. But it was, it was just my thing. I was thinking that uh, effectively the, 
the command line compilers and things were already on the machine anyway. And uh, one of the concerns I have a little bit down the track is just how we're going to go with versioning of assemblies and so on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that'd be that'd be a way to work around it. Mm. Although the DBA could just have the compiler on our desk too, and maybe do that at just you know the time you come around with the code. But yeah, sounds yeah. like an interesting idea. Yeah, look, I, I think yeah, it may well have to be an unsafe assembly. I'm I'm guessing because if I'm actually going to dive out and do uh, command line compiling and or things like reflection emit or even potentially or any of those things in memory. Anyway, uh, that's it's a topic for another day. But uh, looks the other the other concern that DBAs would have is in terms of uh, security in in the uh, in the database and how the managed code would affect that. So your thoughts on security? Oh, well, it, it does seem like, the again, the hosting API folks have sort of outdone themselves with giving SQL Server every kind of entry point it could have and way to monitor what's going on in the process. Um, another thing that they did was they added in those um, host protection attributes, which give SQL Server the ability to look at what any call is doing or, you know, really it was the author of the, the library that tell the, tells you what the call is doing. And SQL Server can decide whether or not which of those three buckets that the call should be in. Yeah, and so these are the permission sets, so sort of unsafe, well, uh, safe, and yeah. external access. Yeah. Right. Well, that's what they do to sort of say what should be in what permission set because mm. there's certain things like MS Corelib that has a lot of functionality you'd want to use inside of it. In fact, you couldn't really function without MS Corelib, but it also has some fairly unsafe stuff like system.threading. And so they had to have a way to distinguish, you know, at a, at a more micro level than the assembly level itself. So that's what the host protection attributes are about. But I would, I think after what I've been reading lately, I would sort of tell any DBAs that, you know, had any questions about how this worked, that the best thing they could do is sort of read about the hosting APIs themselves so that they're sort of convinced that this is, you know, there's no way that people could go around the security that's built in. In fact, yeah. they used to sort of sort of dare people to do that at the beginning. It's like, let's see if you can load a, you know, let's see if you can load an assembly from, from an unsafe assembly, or let's see if you can, you know, start your own app domain or things. And a lot of people tried to do it, but very few people were actually, you know, did anything that could be even considered hurtful. Yeah. Well, look, that's great, actually. Well, that sort of runs us pretty tight to time. I'll uh, certainly make a point of getting you back another day where we'll talk about I'm sort of interested in assembly versioning and uh, alter assembly and all of those sort of issues, which I'm sure... Oh, that's a whole other... Oh, yes, yes, a a topic for another day. But but just uh, the last thing is just what you've got coming up yourself. And uh, so in terms of books or presentations... Oh, well, we're going to be doing another revision of the SQL Server 2005 book. It's going to be done um, after RTM this time, so mm-hmm. hopefully, you know, things will sort of quiet it down a bit. And I've got a lot of stuff going on with the new company. Um, that's that's good, the SQL, SQL Skills company. Yes. Got a lot of um, gigs going on with them. And um, also, I'm going to be um, doing a couple of talks at um, SQL Pass. I'm going to be doing a two-day pre-conference at SQL Pass. Oh, in Dallas, yes, in September. Yes. 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 And a talk after that on um, XQuery and XQuery tutorial, just on the language itself. Great. Yes, no, I'm presenta- presenting a session myself at SQL Pass, and uh, they've got the MVP summit there at the same time, so it should be a, a really interesting group of people. Oh, great. Well, I'll see you there. Yes, indeed. And if, if you're in Hong Kong the week after that, I'm going to be doing TechEd in Hong Kong. I won't be there, but I'm sure some of the people listening could possibly be. So, uh, great. Oh, great. Well, thank you very much, Bob, and uh, we'll hopefully catch up with you soon. Oh, appreciate it. Okay. Thank you.